Our text begins with a significant turn of the tables. In the previous verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul had gone to Jerusalem to visit Peter and the other church leaders. Now, he had gone for two reasons. One was to deliver funds that were raised to help the suffering saints who lived there. The second reason was to test their gospel against his. You might remember that he took Titus along as a bit of a case study to see if they would require that he be circumcised. But in today's verses, Paul writes about the time that Peter came to visit Paul and the church at Antioch. Now, Paul ended up at Antioch because Barnabas had gone to Tarsus, Paul's hometown, to find him, brought him back, and both uh, Barnabas and Paul were teachers and elders here at this church in Antioch, which, by the way, is believed to have been the third largest city in the Roman Empire during this time. It was a major trading point, major cultural center, and from Acts 13 we learned that even the church was multicultural. There were elders from all over the Roman Empire, some from as far as northern Africa, who were serving here at this particular church, and the Spirit was at work. And Peter wanted to experience that. Peter wanted to be a part of it. And so he came to visit this particular church. And according to Galatians 2, he immersed himself in the culture of the church. He, he ate with the people. Um, he worshipped with the people. He prayed with the people. He no doubt participated in communion with the people. And realize this was far different than anything Peter, who was ethnically a Jew, had ever experienced. Uh, Peter had grown up in the Jewish culture, which was very separatist. And so these were new experiences for him. I, I like to think of it as those of us who grew up in the Midwest. Maybe think about the first time you traveled to a place like New York City or, or London or Washington, D.C., and you experienced and heard and smelled so many different cultures. Uh, it, it's eye-opening because we grow so accustomed to the Midwest when we see these melting pots of culture where we can look out and see, you know, five different ethnicities of people. It, it's an incredibly beautiful thing. But Peter's cultural experience would dramatically shift when some other visitors arrived from Jerusalem. Uh, they came to the church at Antioch as well. And I want to read to you from Galatians chapter 2 what Paul writes. I'm going to begin in verse 11. It says, And when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Father, we pray your gracious blessing as we encounter your word together today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does Peter do when the visitors from Jerusalem arrive? It says this, he distances himself 
from the Gentile believers. Paul writes it this way, When they came, he, that is Peter, drew back and separated himself. Now, let's consider this question first. Who are these visitors who are coming from Jerusalem? What are they doing there? Well, the text says that they're visitors who came from James. James is the pastor at the church at Jerusalem. And so there's a lot of speculation uh, that's, that's made about uh, what Paul doesn't say in the text. Some suggest that this is just a, a random group of, of Jewish, possibly followers of Christians, maybe professing to be followers of Christ, uh, but they show up. Uh, but some speculate they're, they're false brothers, just like the ones who showed up when Paul was in Jerusalem, and they butted into the meeting, and they tried to disrupt what Paul was trying to accomplish with the pillars in the previous section. Others suggest that James specifically sent this particular group of brothers to warn Peter to be careful that anything he does, even in Antioch, will cause a ripple effect that could affect the church at Jerusalem, the amount of persecution that they suffer because Peter's word travels fast. But bottom line is, we, we can't be sure. Paul does not give us that information because whatever the reason for being there, that's not the issue. The issue that Paul brings up is Peter's response in distancing himself from the Gentiles. And that leads to the second question. Why would he do that? Why did Peter distance himself? Fear. Fear. That's what Paul clearly writes in verse 12. Fearing the circumcision party. Peter was afraid to upset the circumcision party, those Jews who claimed to follow Jesus, yet required additional requirements as pertaining to the law. For example, the very thing that Paul calls them here, the circumcision party. They required that an individual would be circumcised. They taught that a true child of God must be circumcised according to the Mosaic law. But it didn't stop there. What seems to be the real issue in this particular section isn't just circumcision, but dietary laws. When we look at the Mosaic Law, there were many requirements and restrictions uh, that came about. Sometimes they're categorized into the moral law, the ceremonial law, the civil law, these different chunks and categories. But the dietary laws that we find, particularly in Leviticus chapter 11, seem to fall under this ceremonial or possibly civil category. Israel was not to eat certain types of food. And the reason was holiness. They were to be separate. They were to be different. They were to be distinct from their cultures that surrounded them. They were to be the city that was set on a hill. But beyond the reason of holiness, we understand that abstaining from these foods, especially in the ancient world, was really the wisdom of God because these unclean foods were just that. They were, they were unclean. Uh, I want to look with you just briefly at Leviticus chapter 11 where some of these things are outlined. Leviticus 11 records for us a number of these dietary restrictions that were placed on Israel. And it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals, you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the, foot, part the hoof, you shall not eat these camels, 
because it chews the cud, but it does not part the hoof. It is unclean. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof. It's unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof. It is unclean. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, but it does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. And you shall not eat any of their flesh. You shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. These you may eat. All all of those that are in the water, everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers you may eat, but anything in the sea or the river that does not have fins and scales uh, of the swarming creatures in the water and of the living creatures that are in the water is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh. You shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. And these you shall detest among the birds that shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the, the black vulture, the kite, uh, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the, the cornet, the short-haired owl, the barn owl, the, the towny owl, the currian vulture, the stork, the heron, and others of any kind, the, the hoopy and and even the bat. And, and he goes on and on to describe uh, what is clean and what is unclean according to dietary restrictions. I, I encourage you and challenge you, take some time after the video just to read through the rest of that. And what you do find is just in wisdom, most of the animals that, that are off limits for Israel are what we would consider unclean animals, scavengers. Animals that eat anything and everything and could possibly carry a large number of diseases. And so this, this was the law for the Jews. This was the law that Jesus followed and, by the way, fulfilled. This was the law that Paul and Peter both grew up keeping. Both of these men grew up under these dietary restrictions. But when Peter arrived at Antioch, he's not concerned about keeping this law. Peter is eating with and what the Gentiles... We're eating. Peter says, pass, pass the bacon. What, what changed for Peter? To understand that shift, we have to also understand a whole other story that we find in the book of Acts. And I'm going to briefly summarize it to you. Acts chapter 10. Cornelius is a, a Roman leader. He's a centurion, and he's a God-fearing man. And God appears to him in a vision and says, I want you to send for Simon Peter. And so Cornelius sends some servants to go get Simon Peter to bring him back. And, and while those servants are coming to get Peter, Peter is hungry and he falls into a trance waiting for lunch and he sees a sheet and on the sheet are all sorts of animals, clean and unclean. And the Lord says to him, kill and eat. Peter says, no way. No way. I can't. These are, some of these are unclean. I can't eat. And uh, it happens three times. And Peter's left out of the trance now and contemplating what does this mean when a knock happens at the door and the servants of Cornelius are there. And Peter says, okay, I'll go with you. The next day they go, he meets Cornelius and Peter, Peter understands. And he says, I see now that there is no partiality. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or you're, you're Gentile. In that moment, Peter began to recognize that, that it doesn't matter whether you're slave or free, man, woman, Jew, Gentile. 
What you eat, what you don't eat. What matters is Christ. And Peter understood that in that particular moment. And so back in Galatians 2, Peter knew better. Peter knew better than to do what he did. But in this moment, Peter let his fear overcome him. He's like a, a high school kid who has a group of trusted friends, but the cool kids say, hey, why don't you come hang out with us? And so he says, ah, oh, yeah, I think I'm going to go hang out with these guys. But that never goes well. That's never the right decision according to all the movies uh, that we've ever seen or TV shows. Well, as Paul puts it in verse 11, here's what happens. Peter, Peter stood condemned. When Paul noted what was happening, he doesn't hesitate to call Peter out. What he says is, I, I opposed him to his face. Paul was not afraid to address the issue, even publicly. And some would question that and say, Paul, what are you doing questioning him publicly? He's a, he's a church leader. He's respected. Pull him to the side. But no, he is a church leader. And what Peter did was very public. And Paul needed to address it publicly. It needed to be handled that way. Because this public leader, Peter, when he distanced himself, what Paul tells us is some of the other leaders distanced themselves. Even Barnabas, the encourager, was led astray by Peter's behavior. It's important to note that Peter was not acting upon bad theology at this point. I don't believe he had changed his mind about the gospel. He was acting upon the fear of man, which according to Proverbs, brings a snare. It grabs us. And for this reason, Paul refers to his behavior. He says it's hypocritical. You're all responding in a play-acting, hypocritical way. Peter was not living his life based upon what he knew to be true. Paul cites the main issue in verse 14 when he writes this. I saw their conduct was not in step with the gospel. They were misaligned. The gears weren't connecting. And that's the stuff right there. That's, that's Paul's point. This is what... Peter didn't forsake, but in the moment, he forgot that the gospel of Jesus intends to inform how we live. It's not just a message that secures us a, a place to live in heaven in eternity. It's a message that's meant to change us from the inside out. It's a message that the Spirit intends to proclaim in and through the lives of Jesus' followers every day as we interact with the world around us. And Peter backing his chair away from the table of Gentiles when the Jews arrived is an act that is not in step with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In backing away from the Gentile table, Peter was signaling that the Gentiles were not as good as the Jews. That the Gentiles' food and or company was subpar to that of the Jews. This is obviously an egregious error because as we learn throughout the New Testament, in Christ, we are all the same. Man and woman, Jew, Gentile, slave, free. The ground at the foot of the cross is equal. It's level. And so Paul interrogates Peter with this question. 
If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, he's saying, Peter, you can't live like a Gentile, eat what they eat, do what they do one moment, and then in the next moment, force the Gentiles to live and eat and be circumcised like Jews. In that moment in Antioch, Peter was guilty of perverting the gospel. Peter was guilty of at least giving credence to the circumcision party who were preaching this false gospel that it's Jesus plus circumcision or, or that it's Jesus plus your dietary restrictions or it's Jesus uh, plus obedience to the law when in fact the gospel is this. It's Jesus plus nothing. Nothing. It's all Jesus. Paul's point in recounting the story here is not to humiliate Peter. That's not his intention. But rather it's to show the Galatians that the gospel that he preaches was revealed to him on the Damascus Road by revelation from Jesus Christ. It was not a gospel that Peter or any other church leader scripted for him. In fact, Peter, here's, here's the reason this is in here, Peter was subject to Paul's gospel because Paul's gospel was not Paul's gospel. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ. That being the purpose of the section doesn't take away from the fact that Peter did what he did. And there are lessons that we can learn from the scenario. One lesson is this. Fear is a snare. Fear is a snare. Just like in the courtyard that night of Caiaphas the high priest, when Peter was overcome with fear, and he denied the Lord. In a similar way, he denies him here. In a similar way, he lets fear lay hold of him and convince him that doing the right thing is wrong and doing the wrong thing is right. That's what fear does. Uh, Zach Williams says it so well in his song. Fear is a liar. And we need truth to cut through the cords, the snares that fear wraps around us. Fear is a liar. It's a snare. Second thing I want you to see here is this, that prejudice is serious. Prejudice is serious. In James' epistle in chapter 2, he begins this way. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, hey, you sit here in the good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or, or sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? What happens here in Antioch was prejudice. Peter, in this instance, was preferring the Jews over the Gentiles. He's doing exactly what James writes here is not becoming of a follower of Jesus. What James says is evil. 
And we have to watch for prejudice in our own life. And if you're naive enough to think that it doesn't exist and it can't creep up in your heart and life, you're wrong. Prejudice can present itself in so many different ways. Uh, within the confines of a church, it may not be preferring rich people over poor people, as James says, but maybe a certain group of people. Maybe there's a group of people that we like this song. And the other group says, no, we like this song. Prejudice is when you give preference to those things. The church is made up of different personalities and different backgrounds and different interests. But when we begin to pick and choose and say, well, I like this group better or I like this color better, we begin to lose track of the gospel. We've lost our focus from what is truly central to being a part of the church, and that's Jesus Christ. Third, failure is sure. In our pride, in our self-interest, with our prejudice, we will fail just as Peter did. We're going to hurt other people. We're going to make dumb decisions. We're going to say things that are painful. We're going to demand our interest over the interest of others. And it's going to leave uh, um, painful wounds. How do we respond when that happens? Do we, do we just leave? No. We confess our sin. We repent and say... I, God, help me to change. I want this, this prejudice out of me. I want this self-interest and pride out of me. And we plead with God that he would bring about change in us. I think of that scene with Peter at the end of the Gospel of John when Jesus pulls him aside and says, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes an opportunity to confess and to repent. Four, leaders, others will follow you. James is also very clear in his epistle that leaders are held to a higher standard. They'll be held to greater scrutiny. Why? Because they're leaders. When Peter made his decision to remove himself from the table of the Gentiles, people inevitably followed that. And so, for those of you who are leaders in our church or leaders in your home, I think of parents and how this relates. You have people following you. And we need to be aware of that and the consequences, not only that our decisions have on us, but the people who are watching us. The people who are trying to mimic and imitate us. And finally is this point. Rebuke is necessary. Rebuke is necessary. It was necessary that Paul bring this situation to bear because the gospel was at stake. That's the point that he's making. And we need to be close enough with one another. We need to be um, bold enough to share words of rebuke when words of rebuke need to be spoken. And we need to be humble enough to receive rebuke when a brother or sister in Christ says, I think there's something in your life that's not quite in step with the gospel. Something's not quite right in this area. You see, it would have been very interesting to have been in the room when this happened. 
I think a lot of commentators and scholars uh, would have enjoyed that. But this is written for our admonition and learning. Not so that we could imagine what it was like to be in the room with Peter and Paul, but so we can know what we're to live like in the present, in the here and now. How, how are we to respond to other people? How is the gospel to shape the direction of our life? How is the gospel to shape our rebukes and communication with each other? I can't wait to continue in this particular train of thought as we move through the rest of these verses in the coming weeks because they're powerful, powerful verses where Paul really begins to delineate the glory of the gospel, justification by faith alone. But for now, we leave it here today. I encourage you, look at the questions uh, that are laid out in your bulletin. Um, evaluate, have good discussion, and God bless.